It is a joy to be back to 1 John. It is so interesting on the Lord's providence, how it just so happened that I felt on this passage. This was one of my favorite passages growing up. I, I, you can see my Bible, actually. The page is off because it has, it, it's one of the, the parts of Scripture that has been um, my heart for a long time. Our text today is 1 John chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 19 through 24. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, and we're looking at 19 through 24. Think about, think about salvation and those who have been redeemed. I remember just silly as a teenager, I was like, wow, that would be really nice if we... You know, like we have a name tag when you walk and, and you know, ah, this person works at the reception. This person works at um, accounting and, and they have their net tags. Like, it would be nice if we had a tag for knowing, oh, this person is saved, this person is not saved. <laughs> you give us clarity, right? It would be really nice to know that so we'd know for sure. But we don't walk with these things. But the Lord has given us guidance how we can identify and even for us to test ourselves, to see where we're at, it's, all, it's, it's what the, the book of 1 John is all about, is us knowing for sure do we have this assurance that we belong to the Lord, that we are saved. So we don't have a name tag, but we have a scriptures that tags those that belong to the Lord. And in this passage, um, I, I titled there as the Blessed Assurance for the Doubting Heart. Blessed assurance for the doubting heart. So let's open scriptures. This is the word of God. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and we will assure our heart before him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. In whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. He, we know by this that we, he abide in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved Father, we come before you asking for your direction and your instruction, your correction. Lord, we know that our hearts are so prone to wonder and to doubt and to waver and yet, you give us uh, confidence. Lord, as we open your words and we reflect on these things, I pray that you would keep us from all distractions and all these thoughts that are, are loose. May we bring them captive to Christ. May your name be proclaimed and increase our confidence in you. And even how we encourage one another with this truth, may you challenge us to think more deeply about your great promises. Use me in part of my imperfections, Lord. I know that I, apart from you, I can do nothing, but I know that you can do much through your spirit. Encourage your people through your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, this text is in the context of a, a, a bigger section where John was um, speaking on love as a test for our salvation. So this is a little bit of the context of that. And before we go ahead in, in the passage, I, I, I think I need to make some distinctions here, um, doctrinal. There are things that we, we can't just presume to, to understand that everybody's on the same page. And so, for instance, I want to talk about the difference between security and assurance. What does it mean that someone is secure about their salvation, someone is assured of their salvation? Eternal security is something that God guarantees to the believers so that they are assured of their salvation. 
This is directly connected to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or as I like saying, the doctrine of the Father's preserving of his saints. It's not on them. It is on God to preserve them. The will of the Father is that Christ will lose none of those whom he has given him, and that every elect believer will have eternal life and will be raised to the the lasting glory on the last day. And the Father's will cannot be overturned by anyone or anything, not even the believer himself. Because the Father is sovereignly powerful to accomplish his desired ends, he is able to keep his promises. As Jesus said in John 10, 28, 29, I give my sheep, obviously, eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my, the Father's hand. Using the strongest negative language available in Greek, in the, in the Greek language, Jesus emphatically declares that those who belong to Christ will never perish but they will have eternal life. He grounds the eternal security of Christ's sheep in the sovereign power of the Father who holds them in his hand. And the Father is so great and mighty that no one could snatch them from his hand. He holds them forever. This is our eternal security. Nevertheless, we know that Though God is faithful and has, never, and has given us his magnificent promises, our hearts experience doubts. And on occasion, believers might experience a lack of assurance. And why is that? Because you might have also unbelievers. They're not really sure about these things. And I call here, how can we distinguish the doubting Christians and the self-deceived unbelievers? Why there is such a thing? Well, because in the church era, we have the wheat and the tares growing together, the sheep and the goat. On one hand, there are genuine believers experience lack of assurance, even though they are eternally secure in the Father's hand. And then on the other hand, there are those who, though religious, never really experienced uh, a relationship with God and therefore have not been saved. They might be those who, in an emotional moment, felt compelled to make a decision to Christ, to ask Jesus into their heart, to sign a card, uh, pray a prayer after someone, but they never experienced the saving work of faith. Therefore, you won't see much change in their lives after their profession, and there is no clear distinction between their previous way of living and the one they have after their decision. There is no attachment to God's people, no service to Christ's church, no desire to study God's word, no genuine conviction conviction over sin. Their wayward behavior doesn't seem to bother them. In fact, they feel feel all the more justified on their false assurance that once they walked the aisle or signed the card or prayed the prayer, they are guaranteed into heaven. And on the other hand, we have the genuine believers who are tormented in their consciences whenever they see that their behavior is not matching with the godly, the godly walk that God expects from his children. And so they question the legitimacy of their decision because they are uncomfortable that this is not how things ought to be. Their inner turmoil only helps us to see the stark difference between the believer is struggling for assurance and the self-deceived unbeliever. One waves in their assurance, but ultimately rests their hearts in in God's eternal promises, while the other holds a misplaced confidence. One is preoccupied, while the other is completely undisturbed. Yet their final destination couldn't be so different. One will hear one day from the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your master, Matthew 25, 23. While the other will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, Matthew 7, 23.
And so what are we to do with this dichotomy, with this uh, complex situation where we can't identify these? Well, it leads us to the importance of self-examination. The authors of Scripture clearly desire that believers be assured of their salvation by examining their lives for evidence of a spiritual life. The Scriptures calls those who profess faith in Christ to examine themselves. Paul urges the Corinthians, a, a sinning church, a, a struggling church, he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Peter similarly exhorts the churches in his care, and he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 2 Peter 1.10. And in fact, let's open our Bibles to 1 John 5.13. What is the goal of John writing this whole letter? These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that... So that was the purpose of it. You may know that you have eternal life. In our study in this encouraging letter, we have identified with Pastor John uh, four indicators to give assurance to the believers that they have been saved by faith and had entered in the family of God. The first one, you will remember, was the fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. The second one is walking in holiness. The believers will walk in holiness. The third one was remaining in the truth. And lastly, we, we stop that love for the other believers. So if you look on verse 18, it's kind of the hinge of, uh, for this section, really, is the love, the love for other believers. It says, little children, let us love, not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And we will know by this, this referring, by this love that we have for one another, this true love that we have for one another, that we are the truth. So it's a hinge verse to connect the two related passages to have a common subject. The subject is love. When we love with truth and Indeed, in action, these reassure our hearts before God that we are of the truth. Assurance will spring forth in the heart and the conscience when we demonstrate genuine and authentic love for others. It assures us that we are the children of God. We have confidence in his presence that he is our God and we are his little children. Loving others as God in Christ has loved us is strengthen our hearts and give us assurance. Indeed, loving others in truth, we come to know that we belong to the truth. However, we must be honest. We fail in loving others as we ought. We spend the whole summer discussing how we ought to love others with the love of Christ I don't know about you, but I, I know deep in my heart that I fail in many ways to, burden one, to take one another's burdens, to um, forgive one another, to be patient with one another, all these ways that we ought to love one another. And I look at my own life and I think, boy, I, I don't think I'm doing that in a way that God wants me to be doing. Loving others is not always easy. Clearly, it is easier said than done, says a commentator. After all, at the heart of love is serving others as we have been served by Jesus. Sometimes this service is public, noble, and newsworthy. Sometimes it is private, humiliating, and unnoticed. It can be a challenge. As John was preaching of Jesus' humble service in washing the disciples' feet, if our master, being master, done what he've done, how much should we do? Yes, love requires service, and service involves humility, the humility of Christ. Loving others in humble service give us the assurance that we belong to Jesus. Here's a truth that we shouldn't miss. It is by the knowledge and the truth in our minds that we are sure and and we're sure that we are saved. In verse 19, he says, 
with this, we know that we are the truth. So the word know in 1 John will be repeated several times. We know, so there is a knowledge that assures us of who we are. And in the first point here, I call it the burden of a condemning heart. The burden of a condemning heart. Um, objective truth trumps subjective feelings. Objective truth trumps subjective feelings. The heart, unlike the romantic thought of the heart, in the Bible is very different. It often refers to our hearts as the center of our reasoning, of our affections, and our will. It is called the mind or the inner man. The human heart is tender, is vulnerable, and complex component of every single person. It allows us to express emotions and feelings and to be self-reflective. All of these things happen in the heart. Who you are inside, it's what we call the real you, is a gracious gift from God when it's functioning as our Creator intended. The heart is also the center of our conscience, which acts as an ethical barometer. It helps us to make moral choices. Romans 12, uh, Romans 2.15 explained the role of our, our conscience. It is a God-given gift to mankind that he wrote his moral law in their hearts. If every single human being, they have a conscience. It's God's moral law written in their hearts, which bears witness in their thoughts, alternatively, accusing or defending them. That's the role of our conscience, is to either accuse or defend us. It's an inner lawyer that we have. It judges our actions and thoughts and attitudes. And sometimes we like what we see when we look on the inside, and other times we are wounded and even crushed by what we find. The world often tells us, oh, always trust your conscience. Trust your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. But God tells us in Jeremiah 17:9 that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Only one person can understand it. Jeremiah answers that question. I, the Lord, Yahweh, examine the heart or the mind, and I test the heart to give each one according to their way. So because of the fall, our consciences have been tainted and can oftentimes be, be displaced. That's why we need God's objective truth to speak into our failing hearts. Our conscience can be too lenient in its in this verdict, and, and sometimes it can be too severe, forgetting that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And it still condemns us when God says that he has no more condemnation. For this reason, the Apostle Paul has written in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, and 5 that he himself could not trust his own conscience to evaluate himself. He said that he wouldn't um, let people judge him before time and that he himself could not even trust his conscience to judge him perfectly, but he entrusted himself to God that whom alone is able to search our hearts in a perfect way. That's why we need God's objective truth to speak to us. That's why John is encouraging us not to indulge in our feelings of doubt or to encourage this introspection. He speaks us by this we know. This is objective. This is objective truth. This is something reliable, trustworthy that we can bank on. The Greek word for assure or Petha uh, in, in Greek is, is a key word for us to understand here. It speaks of this inward persuasion, of this convincing. There is a persuasion that the truth does to our hearts and our consciences that convinces that we are the truth. It speaks of being persuaded, of being convinced. In other words, this objective truth and knowledge of God's work in us to love one another trumps our feelings of insecurity. Moving on to verse 20. In whatever our heart condemns us, that means that there will be occasions for doubt. The next, the Apostle John explains that it is possible to assure our hearts even if 
our heart condemns us. This is not, this is a special conditional phrase in, in, in the, the original language. And even for us, we can read that in whatever our heart condemns us or if our heart condemns us. You see, when I was younger in my faith, I thought that my heart accusing me meant that I wasn't a true believer. But what this text is implying is just the opposite, is that being a Christian, having a Christian faith that does not exempt us from having doubt. As genuine believers, we know that we won't obey Christ perfectly and that our consciences will take, up, will take us on a guilt trip. During my time counseling people these past few years, I have observed some situations where people can doubt their salvation. And even though, and the, what the apostle is saying here is in whatever situation, we can find assurance even when our heart condemns us. It's not a matter if our heart is going to condemn us. It's a matter of when it's going to condemn us. So I give some examples. It's not always this, the, all of these situations, but I listed a few here a shallow understanding of the implications of the gospel. Generally speaking, here are those who just got enough understanding of the gospel to be saved, but they never really grasped the, um, the, work, the workings of the gospel in their lives. They struggle with assurance primarily out of ignorance. They're those that lack knowledge. This is why John so repeatedly reminds his readers, this we know. These people, they don't know much. It could be those that have attended a watered gospel church and, and they just got enough to understand the, the minimal, the basics of faith, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that Christ has come to save us. So they just listen to uh, messages that feel good and do good with no much teaching, uh, just enough that one might be saved. But on the other hand, there are those that do attend good churches and, and listen to good teaching sometimes, but they don't spend time in the Word. They might attend um, services and meetings, and, but they don't read their Bibles. They don't make the right connections um, of their salvation, and, and they're afraid because they don't know any better. One is the ignorance, circumstantial ignorance. They, they don't know any better. And the other one is the willful ignorance. On the other hand, there are those that have an oversensitive conscience. Um, Steve Lawson calls this the analysis of paralysis. It's, um, here are those that are highly introspective, those that are often gazing at their sin and thinking about all the ways that they have failed their Savior. And there, there's nothing wrong with lamenting over sin. I, I do encourage that, and we'll, as we'll see here. It's a healthy thing for us to examine ourselves. Um, the problem, though, is that they lack an understanding of their own sinful nature. They are those who, I can't believe that I did this. I can't believe that I did this again. They often gaze in their sin and never at their Savior. They think and overthink to a point to, a, to render them fruitless. They can't see God's grace. They can't get past their sin. All they can see is their sin, which is being constantly dissected, constantly analyzing themselves. It's often called navel-gazing, or as Steve Lawson calls the analysis of paralysis. I can't get past this. I'm just paralyzed with fear. Number three here, a cynical personality or over-inquisitive tendencies. This third group is very similar to the second group. They are extremely analytical individuals. But their analysis is not limited to introspection or dissecting of sin. They also like having a clear-cut, perfectly reasonable explanations for everything, including the truths of Scripture. Though they have believed the truths of the gospel to be saved, they often experience moments of unbelief, of questioning. These are the doubt, what I call the doubting Thomases. They live in a cynical lifestyle, questioning things whenever they are not as straightforward as they hoped for. They experience doubts, particularly moments of suffering, as they can't reconcile tragedy with God good, God's goodness in their over-analytical minds. 
And what I have observed about these people is they're very prideful at its core. They struggle to explain the truths that can only be explained by faith and not by more data, more explanation, and more dissecting. Lastly, I, I list here the most common one is unrepentant sin or a lifestyle of secret sin. There are those who struggle with their assurance because they have some besetting sin in their life. And their problem is not ignorance or an unhealthy introspection. Their problem is perfectly active conscience that is questioning their behavior when contrasted with their profession of faith. This is how God expects me to be, but this is how I am, and they don't match. A persistent sin or a secret sin is sapping their spiritual strength. They are discouraged and often in despair, often wondering if they are saved to begin with. In any case, John is encouraging us is that no matter what might lead our heart to condemn us, because it will, we should expect that in one way or another, it might be that your struggles, if any, any of these categories are not here, but in whatever circumstance, it is possible to secure our hearts and to assure our hearts, to convince, to persuade our hearts that we are of the truth. The, mem- the momentary thought pops up in your mind, your heart condemns you. And most, most times it should. But I want to remind you that the Christian faith does not exempt us from occasions of doubt. Even the Apostle John doubted. Uh, the, John the Baptist, I'm sorry. The Apostle doesn't leave us there, but he offers us hope. For God is greater than our hearts. And he knows all things. I call this point here, God's knowledge puts to rest our doubts. There is a second truth that we may also use to reassure our hearts. The first, it's the very nature was related to us specifically and had to do with God's specific word, work in one individual's life by causing us to love one another. It was verse 18. And the second is more general And that refers in equal measure to all that we are in God. We are God's children. It is simply that whatever our hearts may say, God knows us better than we even know ourselves. He has acquitted us. Therefore, we should reassure ourselves that by his judgment, which alone is trustworthy and refuse to trust our own judgment, For some, the fact that God is greater than our hearts might be terrifying and not a comfort. He knows my heart. He knows the deep deep thoughts of it. He knows the sinfulness of it. In fact, some of the Greek fathers and even the reformers takes this interpretation that this is referring to the judgment of God. He's bigger than our hearts. Not as being one more merciful than our hearts are, but one that is more rigorous. That is, the verse is to be taken as a warning against presumption rather than a cause for reassurance. Calvin expresses this view by saying, from the contrary, he proves that those who have not the testimony of a good conscience bear the name and appearance of Christ, Christians, in vain. For if anyone is conscious of guilt and is condemned by the feeling of his own mind, far less can he escape God's judgment. Therefore, it follows that faith is overturned by the disquieted of an evil conscience. So this, of course, it's perfectly true in one sense. Um, we, we do want to realize that God is, takes sin seriously, and we want to fear him. But John is giving these warnings uh, against presumption elsewhere. This section is really about comforting the believers and reassuring them. How can you be reassured and when you're instilling more fear in them. This difficulty, it doesn't seem to be John's intention in this passage to awake a sense of sin that might lead someone to almost self-despair. It is to reassure his readers. For this reason, then, reason, then, we must take the verse as a presenting, as an additional truth by which questioning a heart, questioning heart may be comforted. In other words, God who knows all 
has nevertheless acquitted us before the bar of his justice on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. Our confidence is to be found, therefore, not in an experience, but in his acts and in his word. So when my conscience sends me on a guilty trip, I look in faith to the God who is greater than my vacillating heart and who assures me of my total and complete forgiveness through the perfect work of Jesus. John, therefore, addresses directly this guilty conscience and the way to deal with it. We should claim once more the wonderful truth of 1 John 1.9. We know that we won't be perfect, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Open your Bible to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. What does John says there? There's John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, and we know we do, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the propitiation, the payment for our sins, the sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Paul expressions of confidence in Romans 8. Also, it's a, it's a very good commentary on this. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one can bring that charge because there is no more condemnation. Even our hearts can't bring that condemnation. It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. He was condemned on our behalf. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God is also interceding for us. Praise the Lord. While God knows our failures and shortcomings, he also understands that our true motives and desires, the inner, innermost yearnings of our heart, his omniscience, that he know, the fact that he knows all things, which trumps our conscience. He's also filled with his unchanging love and sympathy. Yes, God is omniscient. He's loving. He's caring. He is the perfect high priest who intercedes for his people. He remembers his saving intentions and purposes for each of us. If you turn to a few pages there, to chapter 4 of 1 John 9 10. This truth is displayed. What is the confidence that we have in, in comfort? By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The fact that he has implanted his love in our hearts assures us that he will not reject us or disown us. It is to that perfect knowledge that the conscience-stricken believer, believer like Peter in John 21, 17, can appeal, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. Christ looked at Peter and asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me more than these? After you have betrayed me, after you have sinned against me, are you really sure that you love me? 
And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know that I love you. You know that I have failed to love other, uh, love others as I ought. You know that I have failed in obeying your commandments. You know that I have failed to do what I should have done. You know my evil thoughts. But you know that I love you. A less than perfect love, but I love you nonetheless. May you find comfort in that. Now the second part of our passage here talks about the blessings of the uncondemning heart. In verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence. We have confidence. So there's a beautiful and a natural flow in John's argument here in his verses that loving others as we have been loved by Jesus assures us that we are the truth. Even though we don't love perfectly, God, um, even though we don't love God, he says, trust me, not your conscience, which is not infallible and it is not always perfect. Now that we are confident before God, that we have assured our hearts before God, we can be confident also the way we pray, the confidence that we have before God. So the first point here is we have confidence before God. John again addresses his readers as a beloved, right? It's an endearing way of, of calling his readers, showing the concern and compassion for those struggling with a hurting heart and a condemning conscience. It is followed by the words of encouragement. The sense of what John says here is, when we trust the judgment of our conscience to our great God who knows everything, our confidence shifts from being based on our experience and our feelings to being based on God's word, God's objective truth, and what he says about us. He tells there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Seeing who I am in Christ, I have confidence and boldness. John speaks of this confidence, uh, this word parousia in Greek, confidence. It's, it's used a second time here, and in other uh, times have been used and it will occur in our book in two, two times more. So in the first instance, in this one that we just read, uh, let's go to chapter 2, verse 28. Chapter 2, 28. It talks about that confidence. Kind of a repeated theme there for John. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have, what? confidence, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And then we have our passage there in 21, that we have this confidence before God that emboldens us to prayer. And then um, chapter 4, verse 17, also kind of similar to chapter 228, 417 says, by this love is perfected within us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. We're not going to shrink away because as he is, so also are we in this world. And then lastly, chapter 514 repeats the theme of his confidence in prayer, the confidence in prayer. Four, uh, 5 verse 14 says, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we have asked, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it is, as, a, as the commentator puts it, the boldness with which the son appears before the father, not that which the accused appears before a judge. That's not the confidence that we have. We have the confidence of a child with a father. Another commentator calls this the attention to the fact that in ancient times, this word rendered confidence it stood for the most valued right of a citizen in free state to speak his mind. A free citizen was able to speak his mind. He had that confidence to talk freely. He adds, although the meaning of the word became wider and more vague in course of time, yet there always hangs about it is this special association with the thought of freedom of speech unhampered by fear or shame. I can talk to God. I mean, you read the Psalms and you see the psalmist is speaking with confidence to the Lord. 
God, I am grieving. I am struggling. But I have confidence. I'm not afraid of speaking of these things to you. You know all things. I am confident that you hear. And then verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive of him. Because we keep his commandments and do things that are pleasing in his sight. Answered prayers. This confidence before God resulting, resulting from a clear conscience in Christ and provides a motivation and an assurance as I approach the Father God in prayer. If our heart condemns, does not condemn us, we have this confidence before God. My request in prayer flows from a heart and life that first delights in keeping his commandments and second Delights in keeping his commandments, and second, it does what it pleases him. We take pleasure in doing what uh, pleases God. These provide the crucial theological context for the next, um, for the letter promise of 1 John. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, right? Because it's, this is not a free card to say, well, now that everything that we pray, God is going to give us. That's not what the text is saying. Um, as we read in the chapter 5, 14, and 15, he hears us when we pray according to his will. And, and that's the connection there with obeying his commandments, right? a person that is in, in harmony with God, that is following God and obeying him and loving others. He hears us because we're thinking our requests are after his own thoughts. Charles Spurgeon had his words of wisdom to drive uh, some of these truths home to us. He says, commenting on this verse, If our hearts condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. He who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence, and that confidence of faith ensures him the answer of his prayer. A childlike confidence makes us pray as none one else can. It makes us it makes a man pray for great things, which he would never have asked if he had not learned this confidence. It makes him pray for little things, which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt towards God the confidence of children. And he goes on and says, the man of obedience is the man who God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly not according to my will, but his will be done. He's adjusting his prayer requests to that humble thought that not my will, but God's will be done. With submission, says Spurgeon, for he feels is it to be the highest desires that the Lord will should be the Lord's will should be done. Hence is that that man or obedient hearts prays like an oracle. He prays as Prayers are prophecies. And this is explaining this. It's not his proclaiming something and this is going to happen. It's because if I am praying God's prayers, the Lord's will, he will answer because he wants his will to be done. What is, what is the will of God for our lives? Sanctification. If I pray for sanctification, can God hear that? Of course he will. Is he not one with God, that he does not desire and ask for exactly what God intends? How can a prayer shoot, shoot from such a bow ever fail to reach its target? And a quote. So believers with clear consciences, confident access, and obedient lives that please Christ can be assured that God will hear and answer their prayers for their good and for his glory. After all, I am tr I'm a trusting child coming to a loving father who knows all my sins and imperfections and still loves me and accepts me anyway as his son. But it doesn't stop there. There's more blessings. In verse 23, that we, as we keep his commandments, and it says that this is his commandment. What is the major commandment? That we, who believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. So every word in this command is significant. One 
Actually, the main word there is believe. Of course, nine times in the letter of 1 John, that it means to trust or to rely on Jesus' name. It conveys his person and work and all that he is and accomplishes. That Jesus is the Son emphasizes his eternal deity and that unique relationship that he has with the Father. I mean, you think about John 3, um, 36, that those who that have not trusted in Christ, they already condemned, but those who have trusted him, who trusted his Son, they are given eternal life. We also love one another as he commanded us. This command appears repeatedly throughout the Bible, and arguably the most significant appearance of this command is in John chapter 13. Let's, let's open our Bibles there. John 13, 34, 35. This is in the night that the Lord was betrayed. And he gave this instruction. What was the commandment, the new commandment that he gave us? A new commandment I give it to you. That you love one another even as I have loved you and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John, John's gospel in 15, 12, and 17 will repeat the same uh, message. And, and now in the letter of 1 John, John keeps repeating that. This is the commandment that has given us. So the commandment of believing in Christ to be saved, for those who have believed, they obeyed it. And now as a manifestation, that workings of that belief, they are loving each other. Commentator says, faith toward God and love toward man sums up a Christian obligation. Christianity is a faith that works through love. John Piper says here, the one all-embracing commandment of this letter is that we believe and that we love. These are the foundations of our assurance because these are evidence of God's work. They are, and as we're going to see here, the testimony of his spirit. Verse 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You see the connection? The spirit at work in us help us and make us to obey his commandments. So these are the evidence that we belong to him. With this verse, John unites the various strands which he had been unfolding separately in these first three chapters of his letter. No one may dare to claim that he lives in Christ and Christ in him unless he's obedient to the three fundamental commands which John has already been expounding, which are belief in Christ. Are they abiding in Christ? Do they believe him? Do they love others? Do they have moral righteousness? Living in Christ is not just a mystical experience which anyone may claim. It is indispensable, accompanied by the confession of Jesus and Son of God came in flesh in a life that is consistent with the holiness of God. This is how we know, he concludes, that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us at the beginning of our Christian life. It may be at first sight that it seems that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit it introduces us to a subjective criteria of assurance, like in Romans 8, 15 and 16, it talks about the Spirit um, in, in our hearts confirming that we belong to Him. This is not what He's speaking here. He's giving, remember that the book of 1 John is about objective truth. So seeing evidences of the work of the Spirit in our life, that is an objective truth. The Spirit whose presence is, is the test of Christ's living in us, manifests himself objectively in our life and conduct. It is he who inspires us to confess Jesus as the Christ came in the flesh, as we're going to see in the next section of 1 John. It is also he who empowers us to live righteously, to love our brothers and sisters. So if we would set our hearts at rest when they accuse and condemn us, 
we must look for evidence of the Spirit's working, and particularly whether he's enabling us to believe in Christ, to obey God's command, and to love our brothers. For the condition of Christ's dwelling in us and of our dwelling in him in this comprehensive obedience, in the evidence of the dwelling of the Spirit. I want, us, I want to close us with Psalm 131, 1 and 2. We've learned that the Lord addresses a condemning heart, that his objective truth trumps our subjective feelings, that the Christian faith does not exempt us from occasions of doubt, that God's knowledge, his omniscience, puts to rest our doubts, and that when we have this assurance from God, this persuasion in our heart from God's truth, there are blessings that we experience. We experience a confidence before God. We experience our prayers being answered. We experience obedience to Christ, and we enjoy the indwelling of the Spirit. And yet, I know that for many of us, it is not a, an easy thing to quiet our hearts in those moments of, of questioning. And the psalmist here makes this prayer before the Lord to humble himself and calm his heart. And that might be our prayer. O Lord, Psalm 131, verse 1 and 2. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself with great matters. And those overthinking and unresting thoughts, I do not involve myself with these great matters. When things too difficult for me, we don't need to explain everything about our faith. We just need to trust him. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. Oh, Lord, we come before you in thankfulness. You have given us a heart, a conscience that condemns, that accuses us, that defends us, that is not perfect, that has been tainted by sin. And yet you have promised that you are greater, you are bigger, you know all things. Even in our failings, Lord, you know them. And as Peter says, know you, Lord, you know that we love you. Less than perfect love, but we love you. Pray, Father, that you would give confidence to us so we could come to you in prayer. That we would come to the throne of grace, to the perfect high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, to rest our hearts, to give us confidence and to pray for the right things. Lord, we're so thankful that you are the one that give us this assurance that we don't need to base our security in our feelings, but in your great promises, and that we get to enjoy all the blessings from you. Pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters that they may be bold to be in your presence in prayer, humble. We're nothing, Lord. But you want us to walk in obedience to you. Oh, help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.